This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Try the World talked about how they grew their subscription box business to 50,000 customers. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that's launched a $2.5 million portfolio of single product stores. In this episode, you'll learn how they came up with and tested their positioning for each business using Facebook ads, why you should meet with manufacturers in person, and the pros and cons of being completely transparent with your business's numbers. Today, I'm joined by Marshall House from NeedWant.com. That's N-E-E-D-W-A-N-T.com. NeedWant makes products that solve problems, and their most recent products are Peel, a cell phone case that does not ruin the aesthetics of your phone, and Smart Bedding, which is a premium linen bedding featuring smart design details and no retail markups. It was started in 2014 and based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome, Marshall. Hey, thanks for having me. Cool. So, um, you your company has like many different products. You know, I think it's really cool that you go to needwant.com, You see a listing of all the different products. So, give us an idea of um, you know what is like the Needwant company, and what are some of the you know other products that you guys sell. Yeah. So we're structured a little different uh, than most companies. So each each of the brands you just listed, like Peel and Smart Bedding, are all technically their own company, and then they're just wholly owned. I need want, and then everybody in the company uh, works under need want. Uh, nobody's dedicated wholly to any company. We all kind of uh, do our roles in each prospective one, whether it's operations or marketing or whatever. Um, so basically, need want kind of operates everything. Uh, so in a way, you could call us like a studio uh, or like an umbrella company. Um, you know, it's kind of like a hybrid model of doing a few different brands all under under one roof. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure there, there's you know pros and definitely challenges that come with uh, running all of that, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, but tell tell us a little bit more about your background. Like, what were you doing before getting into e-commerce? Yeah, so um, I've always done you know entrepreneurial projects. Um, my background is in architecture. I used to want to be an architect, um, and I worked in a firm for I think three and a half years, from like seventeen to twenty. 20 or 21, something like that. Um, and I realized, you know, like a year in, I just, it wasn't for me. I saw who I'd be when I was 50 and I was just like, nah. <laughs> um, but I, I used, you know, money from working there to start different little projects. And that was kind of my uh, education in, in entrepreneurship was using that money. So I, I used to have a architectural rendering firm where, um, you know, use the background in architecture and basically, you know, like a if you see a sign outside of a building uh, or, or a construction project, you know, showing what it's going to look like when it's finished, uh, that's an architectural mm-hmm. rendering. So I, I used to have a little company that would do those projects, and it was all outsourced to uh, a group in the Philippines that I partnered with. Um, so that was kind of my first foray in like outsourcing and, and things like that. So I did that for a few years. Um, I dabbled with like iPhone apps, and then before Need Want, I had. Uh, a, a project management company, uh, so a software tech startup. 
Um, and then we were uh, brought on to Metal Lab. They had basically acquired our team. Um, and then during that period, it's kind of gray when it all started, uh, is when I started dabbling with physical products. And that's kind of how I met John, uh, my co-founder. But yeah, that's kind of like a quick overview of mm-hmm. my background. So architecture and then tech and then physical products. Yeah, very cool. So that, that transition from tech and you know software and not very tangible products over to physical products, were you able to bring on any of the kind of skills that you learned uh, from your past businesses that you know, weren't necessarily selling physical products over to your new businesses that are now you know, solely physical products? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest things just overall in any business uh, is positioning. You know, why, why are you better or different or what's the new take on that industry that, you know, is different with what you do and, and how you communicate that? Um, those kind of principles, I think, apply to most any business uh, design. You know, design is really important in tech. Um, and that's just always been really important to us. And that carries over as well, um, you know, into anything, in my opinion. Yeah, I think positioning is a really important one that you bring up because it's really laying the foundation and almost like the direction that you're going to bring your company. It's going to matter and basically drive the entire company and your brand from then on. So it's something that you almost have to get right, not necessarily solid or concrete from the beginning, but you definitely have to have a good idea of how you want to position your company. So do you have any tips on an exercise or like how if someone's out there is listening and doesn't really feel like their product or their brand or their company really stands out from the competition? Like how do you figure out your positioning? Um, so it's, I don't know if we'd necessarily have like a formula or anything. It's, it's a lot of, um, you know, it's a little bit of research of just seeing what else is out there. And then it's a lot of, uh, you know, John and I used to just sit down and, and talk together on, uh, whether it was the notebook or the bedding or uh, our appeal cell phone cases, um, you know, like if you, in my opinion, it's always great to own um, an idea. So like Peel was the first super thin iPhone case. And the idea was it doesn't ruin the aesthetic of your phone. Um, so there's a million cell phone cases out there, but that was, that was what we were all about. That's what we owned. Um, when you think of Peel, you think of, okay, that's the thinnest one. If I want one, if I want a case that doesn't ruin my phone's uh, good looks, that's the one for me. Um, and so anytime you can own like an idea like that, and that's when people think of that in that you know, genre of product, they think of you, that's, that's the best thing in my opinion. Otherwise, you're just kind of, okay, it's a me too. It's a rubber cell phone case. Like, how is this one different? Or you know, the opposite side of the spectrum on cell phone cases is an otter box. And it's like, okay, if you want ultimate protection, you think of OtterBox, uh, and that's how they've positioned themselves, and that's what they stick with. Um, yeah. So we always we always look for for that, you know, kind of interjecting yourself into that space in a new way, um, instead of just okay, we sell this, and it's we're just one more guy that sells the same thing. Uh, we just definitely never want to be that. Yeah, I think um, positioning uh, the to do posi- posi- positioning well, you have to be comfortable knowing and coming out and saying that your product's not for everybody. I think that's the, an issue that I, a lot of maybe new entrepreneurs run into where there's, they, someone asks them, oh, you know, what is your store? What is your product? And they kind of list off all of these customers and demographics and they want to serve everybody. And when you do that, then you end up serving nobody, right? So I think that totally. that's a... 
Yeah, that's a big part of it too. And you know, this kind of leads me to the next question, which is how deep or how differentiated do you need to to be? Because let's say you come up with the positioning, you know, for the peel um, cell phone case, it's a cell phone case that doesn't ruin the aesthetics of your phone. If there's enough, if you you came up with that um, kind of positioning, and then you went out into the marketplace and found another company that has something similar to that. I can't think of a good example, but let's say that they're also going after the market of people that want protection on their phone, but don't want to, uh, you know, ruin the aesthetics of it. Would you still move forward with that? Or would you try to, would you try to go down another level deeper to differentiate yourself even more? Like how do you know when is enough when it comes to differentiation? Um, so the quick answer is it just always depends, you know? Um, but I mean, in that example, if, somebody's doing it and doing it really, really well and they're like clearly owning it, then I don't know, maybe then we shy away from that product mm-hmm. and we do something else. Um, but, you know, just because you find someone that's doing it in a similar positioning uh, as you're thinking of doing, um, I wouldn't say that should stop you. I, I we definitely try to look at like, you know, okay, are they, are they uh, marketing this well? Like, are they actually, okay, that's your positioning, but does anybody even know about them? Uh, can we come in and, you know own this, uh, this market because, you know, they don't know how to acquire customers or, or whatever it is. Um, that hasn't been the case ever, but if that ever was, yeah, I would look at, okay, they exist, but does anybody, you know, know about them? Are they, are they finding people? Are they getting the word out? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it just it really depends um, how deep you want to go or how niche you want to go with, with a particular product. For us, it was, just, you know, it was a pain point. We knew a lot of other people. Uh, had the similar, um, you know, pain point of like, okay, I just spent all this money on this expensive iPhone and now I'm going to ruin, you know, these, this great device that, you know, like the best in the world, Johnny Ive design, I'm going to slap this like giant hunk of rubber around it and get to enjoy this, you know, phone that I just shell out a bunch of money for. So, um, you know, it honestly, not, we didn't really do any testing. It was, so that product was John's, but, and then we brought it on, but I know John didn't really do any testing. It was it was just a gut uh, thing, and and it definitely um, was the case where a lot of people, um, you know, resonated. That positioning resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, that that's a good point. You know, because um, I'm reading all of your descriptions on on e1.com, and they all when when I'm reading them, they they're written really well. Where I'm like, wow, I can understand that it speaks to me or it doesn't speak to me like immediately, right? It almost like, yes, that's the exact problem that I have and the exact uh, solution that I'm looking for. And I think that that's a really important point in about how to actually test your positioning. So I know you're saying that you haven't done that with Peel or John hasn't done it with Peel, but is that a process you go through today where you come up with um, maybe a thesis for a position and then find ways to test it? Do you do that today? Um, sometimes. So one example is smart betting. Uh, when we were working on that, we actually, before we launched, we were, we knew, you know, it was going to be this, it was going to help you to, you know, not make your bed or to make your bed faster. Um, and so before we launched the Kickstarter, we, we put up a landing page to kind of collect early interest via email and, you know, we tweeted out and I think we bought a few Facebook ads for it. And it was just, it was just a landing page with, a logo and then a headline and then an email opt-in form. And we, we tested that headline. It was basically the tagline. And so we, I think we tested like four or five um, different taglines, which attempted to explain it. And it was never make your bed again. And I, I don't remember what the other ones were, but 
Um, and then we split test that. We you know, did A, B, and C and split the traffic on all of them. And the headline, Never Make Your Bet Again, uh, was just a clear winner that resonated with so many more people. So many more people opted in uh, you know, to learn more when we launched. So that was just like an obvious winner where it was like, okay, that's the best way to position this and explain this to people, or at least it's intriguing enough for them to, to want to move more. So, I mean, that's one way we've, we've tested things before. Yeah, so you basically have like a landing page and then you, you, have, you A-B test a few different headlines or taglines and whichever one has the most conversions, whether that means uh, signups or I guess if you want to really, really uh, step it up to, to, to test even more to see if anybody's going to pre-order depending on your, your headline. That's how you figure out which one is the one that resonates with the, the most people. And you're just driving like Facebook ad, drive, uh, running Facebook ads to drive traffic to that landing page? Yeah, I mean, maybe we spent $200 on Facebook max. Uh, otherwise, it was just John and I tweeting it out and sharing it with uh, people that followed us. It probably got, I don't know, a few thousand unique visitors. And to us, that was a large enough data point to, to figure out what was the best positioning. Mm, makes sense. Cool. So um, you, once you guys decided to to you know once you decided to launch your first um, product, um, where, wh- which one was that? Because I know I see like a few here. Was it the uh, mod notebooks? Was that the very first one, or was that the second product that you guys put out? So technically, the first one was smart betting. That's how John and I started working together. Um, that being said, we are super green with manufacturing and. Uh, had a ton of problems with our manufacturer and, and that one was in limbo for literally over two years. And so really we just relaunched that one uh, at the end of January this year. So that's quote unquote our newest product, but technically it was our first one. What was the idea behind this? How'd you guys come up with the, the, the positioning behind this one? Like what kind of problems were you trying to solve? Yeah. So that was my first kind of physical product idea. Um, it was before John and I met. <clears throat> the idea was, uh, making your bed sucks. It's there's gonna be a better way. Um, so I'm I'm one of those people that likes sleeping with a top sheet. There's a lot of benefit to that. Some people just don't use top sheets, and that's fine. Um, but you know, I'd wake up with top sheet bunched at my feet, uh, or the top sheet would be off one side, and then your, your duvet is off the other. Uh, so in my mind, the definition of making my bed was was always fixing my top sheet and kind of realigning it with the duvet, and then just kind of you know. Uh, making it center. Um, so the idea was, what if you attach those two pieces together in a way where they still felt like they were free-flowing and you could you know, disconnect them and just use your top sheet if you get hot? Um, you know, what if there's a way to do that? So I originally started with the idea was just to make a little snap system between the two where you'd just buy the snaps and attach it to your bedding. Um, there was no really elegant way to do that, so I realized it would just make the most sense to just build it into bedding in the in, in the first place. Um, so I did a bunch of prototypes just with a local seamstress, and eventually uh, found the best way of doing it. Um, so that was the idea: was to to make making your bed easier um, or kind of cut it out completely. So it comes down to really two things: there's a snap system along the left and right edge of the top sheet and the duvet cover. And so those two stay aligned. And then the other difference is most bedding, the top sheet is actually cut to be about a foot to a foot and a half wider than the duvet cover. Uh, So it sticks out and it forces you to have to tuck in the sheet around the bed. And 
to be honest, most people don't do that anymore in this day and age. Um, and then, so those two things basically is how we, we solve that problem and really making your bed now consists of, of, um, just kind of realigning the duvet. It's all one piece. Now you kind of ruffle it and then you're done. Mm-hmm. So effectively, you don't have to make your bed anymore. Yeah, I really like that that tagline. Never make your bed again. So, were you able to validate this one before you know pursuing it any further? Because I know you said that you were doing some prototypes, but then the next step after that, obviously, to scale it up, right, and get it out to manufacture. And before we get to the manufacturing part, were you able to find out if there was a market for for a, a product with this kind of positioning? Um, so from there, we we just went directly to to Kickstarter. Um, I mean, we figured we found a manufacturer that at the time we thought was good. Uh, more on that later, but yeah, from there we we decided to kickstart it. We, you know, honestly, a lot of our stuff we we're not super great at testing. Uh, I mean, Kickstarter is a, an amazing way to validate mm-hmm. your idea. There's certainly more testing you could do before that, but um, yeah, we just went straight to Kickstarter from there. Right. So, in Kickstarter campaign, uh, the one that you ran, uh, there was a goal of ten thousand dollars, ended up raising uh, almost fifty-eight thousand dollars from four hundred and forty-two backers. Uh, did you ever expect it to kind of uh, surpass your goal by this much? Uh, I mean, we certainly wanted it to, right? Like you, we saw at the time, you know, there's stuff that did just blew past their original goals. So, and we were definitely trying to get it past ten k. That was I always recommend people to set the uh, the goal as you know, the lowest as possible where you can still produce the thing and deliver on your promise. Um, but the last thing you want is, you know, the goal to be so high that uh, you don't reach it, but you still had enough funds to, to still make the thing. So uh, 10K was kind of the bare minimum of what we needed to, to really kick it off. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're definitely pleased though. Yeah, I like that uh, idea of setting as low as possible. And I've heard other uh, Kickstarter uh, campaign creators doing the same thing because uh, it's al- it's also a lot easier to pitch the story of a Kickstarter campaign that or Kickstarter product that already surpasses goal. There's a lot more kind of momentum behind that than talking or than trying to get uh, PR or press for a campaign that's struggling to meet its goal. So there's that piece of it. And obviously you want to be able to reach your goal so you can actually collect the funds. Um, so I think this is an exercise that people have to go through, right? Trying to figure out what is the minimum that they need. How did you guys uh, figure out how much you needed? And you know what did you end up, I guess, spending the $10,000 on? Uh, I mean, so we reached out to a lot of manufacturers and figured out ahead of time, you know, who was going to produce this thing for us. So that, that was hundred percent what dictated how much we needed to raise. So figuring out what their minimum order quantity was and then the cost per unit and all that, that's basically what got us to that. It, it was a little over 10 K. It was probably like 11 and change. Uh, we just made it 10. We could come up with the rest if, if that's all we, we raised. But yeah, it was 100% the manufacturing around it. Mm-hmm. So you, you raised the funds, and then I think this is where it sounds like the horror story begins with the manufacturer. What happened after you, um, you, you know, got the, finished the campaign and decided to uh, go ahead and, and get these made? Yeah, so geez, it's like a two-year timeline. Wow. Um, but to, to make a really long story as short as possible, um, it was just a dishonest manufacturer. Um, I mean, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and then stuff that we just never would have imagined went wrong. Um, so first, it, it was coming in two batches. We had six colors. I think three were in the first batch. Uh, that one was, was supposed to take 30 days. That's not unreasonable. 
you know, most manufacturing takes 30 days and another 30 days to ship to you from overseas. Uh, and that was just blown past by like eight months. And, you know, you're really just at the mercy of this manufacturer. Uh, what they're relaying to you is the reasons why. And it was a lot of excuses. Um, so that one finished, shipped to us. We used them to ship it instead of finding our own uh, freight company. And, you know, who knows if they ever actually put it on the boat. But that one got damaged at sea. And also, it was supposed to take 30 days. But they shipped it the cheapest way possible, where effectively it traveled around the world. <laughs> it hit, like, every continent before it was getting to the port in New York. Uh, and then it arrived damaged or at least it looked like it was damaged so they claimed the insurance started that one over uh the second one i think they just lost hope with us or or i mean they've basically closed up shop or at least closed down their uh any form of, of contacting them and their website and everything but um i mean just everything went wrong they uh and and really it's a really tough position to be in because we were you know, just relaying. We want, we had every intention of obviously delivering this product and, you know, you've got these angry backers and you're just trying to relate to them the best information you can gather. And, you know, it's hard to get good information from someone who's, you know, unreliable. And so it was tough. We were, we were super green with manufacturing. I mean, looking back, we just didn't know what we were doing. Um, this, this new time around, we, uh, we went over, Met with the manufacturer and actually oversaw the uh, the whole first production run. But um, really, eventually, what we had to do is we had to just call it, and we had to uh, realize that it's just never going to come. And we basically were out all that money and began looking for a new manufacturer. Um, and you know, we were just honest with backers. Luckily for us, based on the model of need want, you know, we had this business that had other companies that were bringing other revenue that allowed us to fund uh, this new manufacturing run and, and eventually make it right with our original backers and uh, deliver on the original promise. Mm. So that was, that was tough. That's basically the hardest thing I've ever been through is, you know, you have 500 people that are angry with you over here. And on the other side, you've got this dishonest manufacturer that you should have never gotten into business with in the first place. And then you're out the money and you're trying to figure out where to, you know, get the money to, start the new run and you've lost like a hundred grand in this whole ordeal. Um, so it was the model of need want definitely saved us, um, in that situation. Wow. That's definitely, um, probably a lot of entrepreneurs horror story about, you know, having all these sales already made, but then they couldn't deliver and not necessarily their faults, you know, is the, the partners and the vendors that they worked with. So when you look back on it now, were there any red flags that, that you, you noticed, you know, looking back on your experience with that manufacturer? Um, you know, the order was, was really, really big. Um, to be honest, there really weren't any red flags, but the thing that we didn't do that we should have is, I mean, on an order of that size, we should have gone there in the first place. So anytime we haven't ever met with the manufacturer now, it's because we're, I mean, it's not going to be great, but we're okay if, if literally the worst thing happened and, you know, they just ran with the bunny. We're, we're okay losing that, those funds. Like if it's a small enough order where we can't really justify going there for the first production run, but at the same time, you know, if, if uh, the worst thing is that they're just, you know, 
going to close up shop and we're out, you know, let's say the order is five grand or something, we're, we're okay with losing that. Um, is really the, the way we operate now. You know, sometimes it's just, it doesn't make sense to go over there. But, uh, and this rule only applies to a new manufacturer in the first production run. Mm-hmm. After that, if they deliver, you know, there's a good, there's, you know, good chance that they're going to keep delivering on, on that, that product and the quality and everything. So, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a big order and we should have gone over there to, to oversee the thing. You said that um, a couple of times about how these uh, manufacturers might close up shop. Is that like a common experience that you, not necessarily you have, but that you've heard of others having where they... No, no, yeah, not not really. I just meant that in the case of, you know, quote, quote, close up shop. And, yeah. and then, no, it hasn't really happened to us except for this guy. I just meant that in the, the context of them, you know, just taking your money and running. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and there really was no shop in the first place. <laughs> um uh, a scam artist through and through. You know? I see. So you said that um, you, nowadays for the first production run for a new manufacturer, you make sure to oversee the production run. So that sounds sounds like you go there in person and meet with them. Is there anything else that you do to make sure that you feel safe with, uh, you know, investing uh, your funds into into uh, a large order before? Like, what else do you kind of look out for? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously you should definitely get production samples. Uh, and get that perfected before you start. Um, you know, just make sure they can tweak and modify it and get it to where you're happy with it. Um, you know, and if you can't afford to go over there, there's definitely companies that um, can go visit as an independent third party on your behalf and, you know, scope out the manufacturer and make sure they're legit and there's not children working there or, you know, there's a real business and there's real people there. Uh, actually producing what they say they are. Um, other than that, yeah, the best thing you can do is just go over there and, and poke around and you know meet with them and have them show you the, the facilities and and all that and just spend time with them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you know hundred thousand dollars gone, basically a lot of money spent on on this kind of first experience, but you had the need wants business model like you're saying the business already which helped keep things afloat and actually helped you uh deliver on the pre-orders what was what did you have going on at need one at the time uh, what kind of products or services or what was being offered to to kind of fund the the company yeah so by the time we i mean this is again two years and so the, by the time we eventually made the call and we were just like all right this is never going to happen let's start looking for for a new manufacturer. Um, so by that point we had, we owned Peel. We had acquired that from John. Uh, we had mod notebooks, we had emoji masks. Uh, so, so those three, uh, were paying the bills and, uh, allowed us to kind of stomach that. And that definitely was not, we were not rolling in cash. That was a hard, hard thing to, you know, basically produce something two times over, um, but yeah, those were the, the products that, that funded that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, uh, mod notebooks, notebooks next. What is, uh, mod notebooks and what is the, what is the problem that it solves? Yeah. So mod is a high quality paper notebook. And the cool part though, is in the back page of the notebook, there's a prepaid shipping envelope. And so when you're done with the notebook, you know, you take your notes like normal with pen and paper or pen or whatever you want to use. Um, we basically will digitize it for free once you're done. So uh, you drop it in this nice envelope that's built into the back page, drop it in the mailbox. You don't have to put a shipping label on it or anything. It's, it's already good to go. Um, think like 
Netflix mm-hmm. DVDs back when they were still using DVDs yeah. and like there's a return label. Uh, so you just drop it in there, comes to us, and within five days uh, we digitize it. And then so we have a companion um, app that allows you to, to kind of flip through all of your, your mod notebooks. Um, and then that also syncs with Dropbox, Evernote, and Microsoft's OneNote. So the idea is you can have the best of both worlds. You can take your notes, uh, you know, analog with pen and paper, and then have um, you know the benefits of access and storage uh, and having it forever. So it's you know kind of blending analog and, and digital is the idea. And did you go to Kickstarter for this one too? Yeah, we actually did, um, and that one is is a little different. So we ended up the idea was slightly different. Uh, Basically the same concept, but it was a subscription model. Um, it was going to be, you get a new notebook every month, and with the new shipment, you send the old one back to us. Uh, and So we launched with that on Kickstarter. And the overall idea of you know, having the best of both worlds resonated with people, but the, by and large, the feedback from everybody was like, hey, I love this idea. I just don't want it on a subscription basis. Like I might fill my notebook in six months or two months or whatever. You know, it might always change. So we actually ended up uh, instead of you know we had already raised or I think we were on track to or maybe we already passed it. Um, instead of you know finishing the campaign and then having to build out this product that everybody wanted a slightly tweaked version to, and then you know having to re-release it, we ended up. Uh, Canceling the Kickstarter about halfway through, and you know, telling everyone, "Hey, we're going to relaunch uh, under you know the same idea, but on not on a subscription basis." So you know that at least it allowed us. We knew people wanted it, and at that point, John and I just self-funded it and uh, built it ourselves with our own funds instead of Kickstarter funds, and then launched it about three or four months later. Um, and then just launched it to you know those existing people that backed, and then new customers as well. So uh, yeah, kickstarted it, but didn't finish it on Kickstarter. Was that a hard decision to make? You know, because you already have a campaign that's rolling. People are interacting and commenting. They are loving the product ninety five percent of the way, but just want this small tweak to it. Was it a hard decision to make to to cancel the campaign? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, we definitely debated over that. Um, a lot, but it in the end it made sense because the alternative was uh, going down that path, knowing everybody wants a different version of it. So you have to build out the one version, deliver on your original promise, and then we knew we were going to be better off to then tweak it. And then you have to build out that, and you know there's different resources that go to those two uh, different you know variations on the concept. So. In the end, yeah, you're leaving money on the table in the short term, but I would say most of those people that had backed in the first place then bought the new one once we relaunched it. So it was just delaying uh, the funds, really, is what it was. And when you um, cancel a Kickstarter campaign, do you still have the ability to contact the people that already backed it? Yeah, at that time, you you definitely did. I don't know if you still do. Uh, Maybe they've closed that. I'm not sure. Um, But yeah, at the time, we did. Yeah, I guess that definitely helps with the situation because it's not really, like you're saying, you're not completely losing the potential customer. You can still reach out to them later when you have a more refined product that they definitely want. Um, so the, sec- the last thing you said um, previously that, that 
kind of gives me this question is that you decided to self-fund it this time rather than going back to Kickstarter with the new version of uh, Mod Notebooks. So the, I guess the question is, like, if you could self-fund, uh, is there any, like, why did or not, sorry, why not go back to Kickstarter and why did you decide to self-fund instead? Yeah, so Kickstarter, you know, if people listening to this um, follow that space, they've probably seen, you know, there's a growing number of projects that, raise a lot of money, get a lot of hype, uh, and then fail to deliver. And uh, by self-funding it and building it and then launching, um, you basically do all that messiness behind the scenes and then you've figured it out and then you launch. Um, you know, it's, it's tough making a physical product. Um, things don't always go according to plan. Sometimes your you know, projections are off on what it's going to cost until you actually get into it. Um, you know, we just... We didn't want to be, I mean, coming back to smart betting, we didn't want to be one of those companies that is a story where, you know, it launched all this, um, all this interest and then it, it failed to deliver and, you know, a bunch of people lost their money. We, we just so didn't want to be one of those companies. And that's a growing trend, I think, these days where there's, you know, there's, there's projects that raised millions of dollars on Kickstarter and then they, they bust and, mm-hmm. and close up shop. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was a tough call when we decided to, uh, to redo it. And, you know, for us, our way of making it right, uh, with all these people that hung on for two years is we actually, uh, just like went to the drawing board, totally, uh, improved on, on every aspect of it. Really the main thing was we switched from cotton to linen. Um, so actually our cost to manufacture each set, uh, more than doubled from the original concept. Uh, and we just, you know, delivered that to the original backers at, you know, their original backing. Uh, so really, for us, it was like we we uh, paid three times over for their original project or their original uh, betting. But uh, again, we just that was our our way of of making it right with people um, and, and thanking them for hanging on for two years. Um, so yeah, it was it's definitely tough bringing a product to market, and I think by self funding building it and then being able to launch and it ships and gets to you in two days uh, is, you know, you can just feel safe in that and you've already figured it out manufacturing. Because, um, you know, just if you look at the data, there's, there's tons of people that launch these things with amazing teams behind them and, and they still falter mm-hmm. and, and fail because uh, some numbers were off or whatever the reason is. Mm, that's interesting. So, Did you feel yeah. less pressure by self-funding rather than going through the Kickstarter route? Yeah, I mean, you you definitely have you know to come up with funds yourself up front, and that's pressure. But it's it's a good kind of pressure, right? Like you're it's your money on the line, right? Um, you're not this not to worry about disappointing other people, right? Exactly. So you you know obviously made a right with uh, smart betting. You I'm not, it sounds like you probably didn't uh, profit from it at all. It sounds like a lot of uh, money you put into it. So you you guys made a right with that. Uh, but when you launched the Kickstarter campaign, I guess the first time with Mod Notebooks, did that kind of history affect um, trust? I guess from the Kickstarter community at all? Did it ever come up? Uh, the smart betting to yeah, launch. just the smart betting experience. Um, you know, with uh, the delay. You know, obviously, eventually, you made a right with all the customers. But were people hesitant to fund the mod notebooks campaign? Um, no, only because you know, had it been two years later, that I think definitely. But I think those two were launched 
like John and I actually had the idea for mod or what became mod notebooks um, when we were filming the marketing video uh, for smart betting. Mm. So I think we actually launched uh, that Kickstarter just shortly after the smart betting one. So that one was still, you know, at that point we thought and, and so did, you know, our customers that, you know, it was going to be delivered in, in the next couple of months. Uh, so at the time it, it wasn't this, you know, kind of project in limbo that's mm-hmm. looking like it's going to fail. Uh, right. But yeah, I mean, that 100%, that would definitely have affected things. Uh, and we just, we wouldn't have done that had uh, it been, you know, in that two years in and it still hasn't delivered. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the um, the marketing behind all of this because all the products, you know, I'm looking at a lot of these and I could see myself buying a lot of these products, but I'm assuming that the marketing has to be, you know, obviously different, right, between all of them. Is it a, it must be challenging, right, trying to uh, market all these different products at the at different times, they're all on different destinations. Like what is that experience like for you guys? Yeah, so for those listening, like, just yeah, we uh, you touched on it. Everything is its own website. So smart betting is smartbetting.com, and PLS is its own website. Um, so there is no real um, like if someone learns of need want, and that's great, then they hear about all of our products. But if we acquire a customer for Peel, they may never hear about the others. Um, so yeah, we definitely have to kind of think about how we acquire customers for each one. Uh, they're not all sitting under one store or anything like that. Um, and it's it's definitely been different. Like we've up until about June last year, uh, everything was word of mouth. That was the only thing we had done zero advertising. So the way we had acquired customers were one word of mouth, uh, two was press, and then three was we had a the need want blog uh, had some good content on it, um, and we had you know driven a lot of people that way that then you know went to the homepage and saw everything else that we made uh, we're kind of known for like really radical transparency with with some of our projects so up until that point that's that's kind of all we had and you know grow is we were growing but it definitely was much slower than uh, figuring out advertising or, or more uh, you know channels of acquiring customers so fast forward to about June maybe August last year uh, we started to dabble with advertising on Facebook and Twitter uh, and, and eventually Instagram and, and Pinterest. Um, and so we started with Peel. We have the best conversion rate on that one and the best margins on that one. And you know, we worked with the firm and, and really about a month in, we had kind of figured out advertising enough to at least make it uh, profitable. So every dollar that was spent on ads, you know, we could tie back to profitable revenue. Um, and that's really for the last year. That's been uh, the biggest growth channel for us is Facebook ads. Um, so dialing that in is, has been our our number one growth uh, channel. Awesome. Sounds 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 like uh, word of mouth, press, blogging, and the Facebook ads are the main keys. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about each one, uh, starting with your blog. So you were saying that you guys are super transparent. I think I saw something about this too, uh, with your the projects you guys create. Um, what are I guess the pros and cons of that? You know, because I've seen this movement. I think more so in the technology space where people are publishing like income reports and like 
being really transparent about how much money they're making, what they're spending their money on. Um, but the, I guess the cons that come with it are also there's maybe more pressure, maybe attract the wrong kind of attention. Like what have, what has your experience been like with uh, being transparent with uh, the, your projects? Yeah, like we we started it early on. Like the first blog posts were, uh, you know, us sharing numbers on different case studies and we kind of stumbled into it. You know, we were writing those posts just because they were fun. And then we realized a lot of people uh, love numbers and seeing that kind of stuff. Um, but it, I mean, honestly, there was no like high level strategy on any of that. It was just, this is fun. Let's keep doing it. People enjoy it. Um, you know, the, the benefits are certainly hard to quantify, but mm-hmm. you know, we've met a lot of awesome people and, uh, and we've become known for this thing. And it just helps overall. Um, but speaking to the cons of it, I mean, there's definitely, you open yourself up to copycats and people stealing or trying to build exactly what you've built based on, you know, a case study like uh, emoji masks, for example. We were the first ones to do that. And now there's uh, copycats. And I think there would have been either none or way less had we not published the numbers on that, uh, you know, one month into it. So, you know, like, whatever, it's fine. Uh, I'm sure we left money on the table by doing that, but I still see the benefit in uh, being transparent and, and sharing with people. It builds, you know, community. It helps build our brand. Um, it, it's just fun. Again, I keep coming back to that. It's it's just fun, and we'll, we'll continue to to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you are, if this is helping build a brand and drive traffic to your site, then maybe overall. Uh, at the end of the day, it might be more beneficial than than um, harming, you know, even your bottom line. At the end of the day, uh, but like you're saying, it's really hard to quantify that kind of thing. Um, yeah, like we definitely for us now, it's you know transparency when possible, and when possible is kind of now the key word. You know, there's there's certainly uh, competitive reasons not to share some things. So, you know, we default to okay, we we'll share this, but if there's a reason not to, or a really good reason not to, you know, we we, we won't. Sometimes, but it just depends now. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, so you mentioned uh, press as well early on. Uh, that was a key driver of traffic for you. Uh, what what is the strategy there? Like, how do you pitch the press to cover the the products that you're putting out? Yeah, I mean, I think coming back to positioning that that helped a ton uh, with getting press. Um, I think uh, so. I mean, some of it they found us via you know the Kickstarter campaign, and I mean. Certain blogs and journalists, they're looking for something new to write about. You know, they're, they want you to exist so they have something to write about. So you know, we got lucky on some of them where they just found us. But uh, others, you, know, you just have to craft a, a short and compelling pitch. Uh, look for you know, journalists. If, they're, if it's a large blog, look for journalists that cover uh, you know, that type of product. Uh, not everybody writes about everything in tech. If it's a tech blog, you know some guys focus on the Internet of Things or, or whatever. You know you have to you have to match up with what they write about, and they all publish their email address or there's a general you know tips email address. And I mean it's just a, a grind of reaching out to people and uh, trying to get in front of them, whether it's email or Twitter or, or whatever. Uh, and and again, I, I would definitely urge people to keep it short and sweet. Um, and you know, having something that's just interesting and resonates with them goes a long way. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's not really anything new, it's not interesting to them. Um, so having some solid positioning and, and positioning in a way where it 
feels like it's new and exciting, uh, that, that definitely helps. Yeah, I think that's an important point that the people that you're pitching, these publications, they're all people that are trying to do a job as well, and they want good stories. So if you can help them do their job by giving them a good story, then they're much more likely to listen and obviously, you know, feature you. So I think that the positioning part comes into play because it can't, because not only is it a good positioning kind of give you a hint at what the story is, but then also keeps it short and sweet, like you're saying, to get your message across as soon as possible. Um, so Facebook ads, so you, you started dabbling in that and you said you guys uh, originally hired a, an agency to help you with it? Yeah, I mean, from the start, we worked with this agency. Um, I think when we started, we, we put aside like $10,000 that we were okay with, with losing. You know, it was a, it was a massive experiment uh, and you have to spend money on ads to, to figure out if it'll work and it might not. And you have to be okay with losing that money. And if it, you know, if it isn't working, then you shut it off and you stop losing money. But, um, so we, yeah, we worked with them. I think the original idea was to spend like three to four, uh, grand for three to four months, you know, 10 grand overall, um, but lucky for us, they were able to figure out some ad units and targeting that uh, were at least break even is you know the number one thing we were trying to hit, and then from there you can kind of work down. Um, so yeah, it, it ended up working out. Um, great guys we work with, and um, you know, like I said, like it was a, it was a massive experiment. There's all these different marketing channels and ways of acquiring customers, and. You know, we had this list of different ideas, and they are all question marks up until we try them. And some are going to work, and some are not. And for us, it was just you know slowly saving up money to uh, to use our resources to you know find out if one or the other was going to work or not. And some work, and some don't. And that's great because then you at least know, and you can move on to the next one. Do you remember some of the things that that you learned with that experience, like either about Facebook ads or just about your customers? Uh, nothing that really stands out, you know, I think I don't manage it day to day, you know, it's, it's this agency we work with and we have like a weekly call, so I'm not super in the nitty gritty of it. Um, but you know, it's, you have to, I know you have to get into just really targeted niche audiences. And so we're always looking for new audiences that fit, uh, with, you know, the positioning of, of peel and, you know, minimalism or, or whatever it is that resonate with them. Um, you know, for us, I think the interesting thing was, even if it's just break even, if we, if we just break even on it, yeah, we're not making any money, but, uh, going into it, we knew the word of mouth around that particular product, uh, was really, really high. You know, it's the number one thing you walk around with is your phone and people constantly see our case or they think there is no case and they comment, Hey, like you idiot, you don't have a case on your phone. You know, that's so (laughs) dumb. They're like, actually I do. And then, you know, that's a great kind of word of mouth situation where they can share our product. So breaking even on a product like that where, you know, there's such a high word of mouth uh, quotient on it, we were okay with that because that, that draw, drew in and brought in uh, more customers in the future. Um, so, yeah, I think for that, you know, look and if you have a high kind of word of mouth and there's different ways of, of figuring that out, going into it, uh, being okay with breaking even is fine. Awesome. Yeah. So, in the spirit of transparency, can you tell us, you know, how successful is the entire, I guess, need want a business today? Yeah. So we're a little over two years into it. Um, first year, I think we did around 300k in top line revenue. Then second year, we did 
we just over doubled. I think we did like 700,000 and some change. And then this year we're on track to, depending on the holidays, um, do somewhere between two and a half to, to 3 million uh, this year. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so what's the team like? Is it just you and, and your partner? Like what, who, who's that behind the, 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 I guess, entire need want of business? Yeah, so we have, uh, including founders, we have seven employees uh, and then two part-time as well. Um, so the team consists of myself, I, I act as CEO. Uh, my co-founder, John, is uh, head of product. So he's working on you know, future products and then additional products for our existing brands. Uh, and then David, who is our third co-founder, he came on about a year in. Uh, heads up design, so he does all of our uh, you know design for everything, whether it's packaging or the websites. And then we have a operations guy, Jason, who oversees just you know all operations as far as shipping logistics and all that. Uh, he works with our fulfillment center. We use an outsourced fulfillment center. Uh, and then there's uh, head of support, Ginny, and then we have uh, an assistant slash editor. Uh, she also helps edit uh, our minimums publication. We've got a few content sites that kind of serve as, as free advertising for us. So she heads that up and then also is you know, just the overall assistant for the company. Awesome. So thanks so much, Marshall. So buypeel.com, smartbetting.com, uh, modnotebooks.com, emojimess.com are, were the four products that we talked about today. But if you just go to needwant.com, you'll see all of the, the, product, the, the products and the links to all of them. Again, thanks so much for coming on, Marshall. Is there anywhere else that you recommend listeners go and check out if they want to follow along with uh, what you're up to? Um, I think needwant.com should point them in the right direction. Uh, you know, We've got everything linked up on there. Cool. And then I guess for any other podcast listeners out there, I know you guys also put out podcast episodes. Is that also at needwant.com? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you can find it on there, but it's also called Hatching if you look for it in, uh, in iTunes. Awesome. We, we basically, it's more of the same. Uh, we talk about kind of the inner workings of our company and share different numbers and uh, what's been working, what hasn't, things like that. Yeah, very, it's very cool. It looks like uh, some of the topics, um, the most recent episode is about smart betting launch and revenue numbers. You talk about uh, the biggest sales months and all that. So it looks like a lot of great transparent things uh, I think the audience is going to love. Um, cool. So again, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.